The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Thanks very much, Jerry. I've been working hard at contextualizing recently. Uh, I trust that you'll uh, understand what I say. I don't think Sinclair would be any help to you whatsoever, uh, because he's even more difficult to understand than I am. And uh, I've been trying uh, as well to contextualize in terms of dress, and I think I've got the uniform right. Uh, This is the Westminster National costume I'm wearing today. Uh, And um, anyone I think who stands here has to dress uh, in this way. Uh, thanks very much to Jerry and everyone else uh, who's been involved in inviting me to be uh, part of this uh, over these next couple of days. I've just had a thought of in the past 15 or 20 minutes wondering, why on earth did I ever say yes to doing this? Um, but I have, and here I am, and by God's grace, uh, we'll proceed. Uh, when it comes to seeking biblical guidelines and models for our preaching, we most often turn, as you know, to the Acts of the Apostles, to the epistles, to the examples of Peter and Paul and Stephen and Timothy, because we believe they are all very good biblical examples for us to follow in our ministries. And we can identify with them and we can learn important lessons from their practice. And I'm sure everyone here today knows the reason for that. In terms of redemptive history, the ministry of the apostles and our ministry today occur in the same epoch or era. We, like the New Testament uh, apostles, minister and preach God's word in that period between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. In Paul's terminology, we preach in the last days. And we can easily draw that direct line uh, from the manner and method of Paul's preaching to the manner and methods which we adopt today. What I want to do for just a few moments this morning is to point you to another biblical model of preaching which can direct us and inform us about the task of proclaiming the good news. And it's the example of Jesus Christ himself. And the reason why Jesus is an appropriate model for present day preachers is not just because he's our savior and our Lord and our king, he is that, and that is sufficient reason, But again, in terms of the history of redemption, the ministry and the preaching of Jesus, the preaching of the apostles, and our preaching today can be considered together. And you all know the reason. They all occur in the realm of fulfillment rather than the realm of promise. The Old Testament prophets looked forward to what was yet to happen in terms of salvation and redemption. Their hopes of salvation were all expressed in the future tense. Even the powerful and the effective ministry of John the Baptist belonged to that era of promise. Matthew 11 asserts that all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And John is grouped and bracketed with those who looked forward. He stood on the threshold of the new era. So that's why Matthew can also write, that among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
John occupies a unique and unsurpassed position in the era of promise because he is the immediate forerunner of Messiah. Yet Matthew goes on to say, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. The least person in the kingdom is greater than John because such a person enjoys in reality what John only knew in promise. So the decisive transition has been made. All that the Old Testament saints anticipated and looked forward to has been realized in the coming of Jesus. When Christ came, the era of promise ended and the era of fulfillment was inaugurated. He fulfilled all that the Old Testament people longed for and hoped for. And that's the force of his words in Luke chapter 4. Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, a section of the Old Testament which is unsurpassed in terms of the future hopes of Israel. All the hopes and longings and aspirations of Old Testament believers are encapsulated in those verses. It contains all the elements, all the ingredients which will characterize the coming rule of God. And against that background, Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth and he announces with authority, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The era of promise has ended. All that you have longed for, all that you have hoped for has arrived. The mystery hid from ages past is revealed. The kingdom of God is among you. And students at Westminster know those great truths, I'm sure. So that our preaching ministry today must be understood in terms of the revelation of the mystery which was hidden for long ages. You remember how Paul puts it? Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings and by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him. And he goes on to the doxology to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, of course, we need to be careful in drawing the parallels between our ministries and the ministry of Christ so that we don't obscure the unique and the, the foundational significance of Christ's ministry. He fulfills Isaiah 61 as no one else has done. He alone is the servant of the Lord, whose life and death and resurrection accomplish our salvation. But whilst we don't obliterate that unique position, neither should we fail to see our ministries as being continuations of the gospel ministry which he inaugurated. We don't preach a different gospel. We don't preach a diluted version of that which Jesus declared. We too, like Christ, are proclaimers and heralds of the one gospel of grace. So that our preoccupation is not just with what God will do in the future. We declare that God has acted that all of the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ, affirmed and confirmed in him. And our message centers on what God has done in Christ, as well as what God will yet do at the day of Christ. The preaching of the gospel 
is this great declaration that God has acted in grace and in love and in mercy, that his promises are fulfilled in Christ. And that's the message which Jesus preached in the synagogue in Nazareth. So if our preaching and our ministry today is of a peace with the ministry of Christ, what are the lessons that we can learn from his preaching? Let me try to spell them out in terms of four aspects, in terms of the audience whom Jesus addressed, in terms of the content of his preaching, in terms of the delivery, and in terms of the response. Who did Jesus preach to? Well, he says, verses 18 and 19, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The audience whom Jesus addresses in his preaching are the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. And in a very unique way, the ministry of Christ in Galilee had already been the evidence that the blind were gaining their sight, that the oppressed were being delivered. But the continuing ministry of Christ was to those whom Isaiah had described. And we ask, well, who are these people? Are they literally those who are poor economically? Literally those who are incarcerated in prisons and in jails? Those who are oppressed by capitalist economic policies? Those who are physically unable to see? Well, there's a sense in which that's absolutely right. But such a conclusion doesn't fully appreciate the biblical context. In the Bible, the connotation of poor is always that of humility. The poor are the humble poor, whereas the rich are the self-sufficient and the proud. Luke says the kingdom belongs to the poor. Matthew, in a parallel statement, says the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. It's the rich man who has difficulty in entering God's kingdom. God fills the hungry with good things, but the rich he sends away empty. And whilst... The scriptures do not point to a virtue in economic poverty. Neither do they point to a vice in economic wealth. What they do say is that those who acknowledge the bankruptcy of their own resources, those in who, who in humility confess their need, God responds in generosity and grace. And this, friends, is our audience, the poor, the blind, the prisoners, the oppressed. And when you begin to think about it, is that not the concerted biblical testimony about man's native condition? How is it that the Bible describes the peoples of this world? They are men and women who are held captive to sin. They are enslaved and imprisoned by Satan. They are blind and they haven't seen the light of the glorious gospel. They are oppressed and controlled and mastered by the evil one, victims of his diabolical schemes and his wicked strategies. And the Bible says that such is the condition of all people, apart from the transforming, liberating grace of God. In our sin, we are all poor and blind and oppressed. So that our proclamation and our preaching is not restricted. 
It's not narrowed to some particular groups or categories of people. We preach to the poor, no matter what social class they come from. We address the imprisoned who wander freely and aimlessly on the highways of the world. We proclaim the gospel to the blind whose vision is filled with the bright lights and the attractive images of our high-tech society. And this was precisely the aspect of Jesus' preaching which stuck in the gullet of his hearers in Nazareth. For as Jesus expounds his text, he selects two examples from the Old Testament. And he shows the breadth of God's grace. He illustrates how the grace of God hurdles the artificial man-made barricades of city and province and country and social class. There were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. God acted in a most unpredictable way. The prejudice of the inhabitants of Nazareth was such that they expected Christ to perform miracles in his own hometown before ministering to people in the other towns in Galilee. Do here in your hometown what you've heard you did in Capernaum. But you see, the ministry of Jesus was operating on a different level. The door of salvation was thrown open in an unprecedented way. Beginning from Jerusalem, the gospel would be preached to all nations, not just the local inhabitants of one town or community or nation would be the recipients of God's grace but now in a grander and more glorious way than ever before, the gospel of the kingdom would be taken to the poor, to the blind, to the prisoners, to the oppressed, wherever they are found, irregardless of their nationality or their tribe or their tongue. God's sovereign purposes in election and salvation will not be restricted by any human barriers. The audience to whom we go, friends, with the gospel is a multi-ethnic audience. It's a universal audience because God is gathering out a people from every people and every nation under heaven. And in our ministry, we need to be reminded of that because I think too easily we restrict the scope of our audience. We're insensitive to the wide embrace of God's electing grace. So easy as you look over your congregation on a Sunday to categorize people and to consider some unlikely to be drawn to Christ, unlikely to be converted, unlikely to have any real interest in spiritual things. And sometimes as pastors and preachers, we want to focus on those who are most likely from our perspective to respond to the gospel. And all the time, God surprises us by bypassing many widows and lepers whom we think he should deal with. For the message of redemption is for all, the blind, the poor, the prisoners, the oppressed, all who realize their need, all who know that their only hope 
is to cast themselves on the mercy and the love of Christ. So our preaching, like the preaching of Jesus, addresses a universal audience, all who are in need. What was the content of Jesus' preaching? What exactly is the gist of his message to the world? It was a distinctive message, wasn't it, of good news and freedom and sight and liberty? And again, you all know the Old Testament background, the year of Jubilee. The trumpet was sounded, liberty was proclaimed. After a sequence of seven sabbatical years, the 50th year is special, as freedom and release is given to all who are enslaved, a symbol of the messianic age. Only through Christ is true emancipation, true release, known and experienced. And again, friends, that's the content, that's the call of our preaching. We proclaim that in Jesus Christ, men and women can know freedom from fear, freedom from sin, freedom from bondage to sinful lifestyles. Liberty and release can be found in Christ. The darkness of sin is banished by the one who is the light of the world. The poverty of sin is destroyed through Christ in whom are hidden all God's riches. And the shackles of sin which restrict us are broken and are shattered by the power of a risen Savior. But notice, as you've done before, how that Jesus breaks off in mid-sentence. He doesn't finish the sentence from Isaiah 61-2 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Because what the Old Testament prophet telescopes in time is separated and teased out by Jesus. And Jesus emphasizes the current aspect of this ministry, the grace and the favor of God. Is that not a message which poor, blind, oppressed, sinful people need to hear? That apart from the favor and the grace of God, they have no hope. They can do nothing to release or liberate themselves. And in the gospel, we proclaim a most relevant message. By God's grace, you can see again. By God's grace, you can be enlightened. By God's grace, you can be set free and you can be released. Brothers and sisters, don't let anyone tell you that there is any other message which sinners need to hear. Don't be deceived into thinking that when you are preaching a message of grace, that you're being irrelevant or you're being meaningless. Don't ever think that the gospel of grace doesn't scratch where people itch. No other message is relevant to men and women in their sin. No other message can meet their needs. What they need more than anything else is the grace and the favor of God. And it is that abundant grace of God, sovereignly bestowed on men and women through Christ, that transforms, that changes benighted and oppressed sinners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. One of the most exciting periods in my life was discovering the majesty and the mystery of the doctrines of grace. I remember being introduced to reformed writers like Machen and Murray and preachers like Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones and 
for me, as a teenager, a wonderful new world opened up before me. And then I think of coming here almost 20 years ago and beginning to fill in the details and the underpinnings of that understanding of revealed truth. That God's grace provides needy sinners with all that they need. That God in Christ has done everything for my salvation. That my acceptance before God has nothing to do with my performance or my achievements. That because of God's grace, I'm held secure in the loving embrace of my covenant Lord. And next to understanding and appropriating those doctrines personally, we have no greater joy than sharing them with others. The privilege of expounding the scriptures. Time and again, we have spoken with people who have labored under a burden of trying to be good, trying so hard to please God, trying to win God's approval on the basis of their own good works, mixed up and confused about God and about eternity and about salvation. And then, as we explain the gospel of God's grace, isn't it marvelous to see those lives turned around and changed? So that whatever else we do as preachers, we must proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Our message must resonate with those chords of grace. We must never reduce the gospel to some adulterated version which lays a burden on people's shoulders and tells them that their salvation is the result of their own efforts or their own initiative. Let the theme of the grace of God predominate in your preaching as it did in the preaching of our Savior himself. There are two aspects in which Jesus delivered his message that we can note. Firstly, this passage tells us that the preaching of Jesus was spirit-anointed preaching. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. In a unique and unparalleled way, Jesus was the spirit-filled man. He was the Christ, the Lord's anointed. And yet, we who continue to minister in his kingdom are promised the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. You recall those words of Paul as he defends his preaching ministry in Corinth. He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Preaching is a unique form of communication. It's not a process by which men and women are persuaded into the kingdom by some wise and compelling and eloquent and convincing word. The objective of our preaching is to bring about a change in people's hearts and in their lives. And that is a spiritual work. And for that reason, preaching mustn't be undertaken in human strength or with human power. It must be with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Only the Spirit, you know, can effectually call men and women and regenerate them. And the preaching that leads to that transformation must of necessity be spirit-anointed preaching. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. 
This is what makes preaching effective. The power of the Spirit. This is what produces transformed lives. This is what creates and builds up churches. Power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. Some of you will remember reading Dr. Lloyd-Jones's book on preaching and how he encourages us to expect and seek for the power of the Spirit in our preaching. He wrote, do you expect anything to happen when you get up to preach in a pulpit? Or do you just say to yourself, well, I've prepared my address. Some of them will appreciate it and some will not. Are you expecting it to be the turning point in someone's life? This is what preaching is meant to do. Seek this power. Expect this power, yearn for this power, for I am certain, says Lloyd-Jones, that nothing but a return of this power of the Spirit on our preaching is going to avail us anything. Those words were originally spoken here in this seminary almost 30 years ago. We need to be preachers who are empowered and filled with the Spirit. Ask God to grant you the anointing of the Spirit as you preach. Don't ever be content with an orthodox exegesis of the passage. Don't think that because you have accurately explained and expounded the text that you've done all that's required of you. Apply the word pointedly and directly to the hearts and the lives of your hearers. Deliver it with passion and with energy and with conviction. Get beyond a cold and a clinical statement of Christian truth to something that will under God be effective in pricking consciences, in warming hearts, and in moving people to action. This reformed faith that we love, folks, is heartwarming. It is mind-expanding. It is nourishing. It is energizing. Don't ever sell it short. Don't serve it like a half-cooked frozen meal which is bland and lukewarm and unappetizing. Serve it fresh. Serve it hot so that the aromas and the flavors of the gospel can be sensed on the taste buds of the soul. Let your hearers savor the full range of biblical flavors as you preach the gospel in the power of the Spirit. Note what's said in verse 22. All spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. You see, Jesus not only preached grace. His preaching was gracious in its delivery. And for the congregation in Nazareth, that was the amazing and the astonishing thing about the delivery. He spoke with such conviction, with such freshness, with such graciousness, that his old acquaintances were struck with astonishment. And when the gospel of grace is preached in that gracious, winsome way, the correlation is striking. Now, I think we need to be careful that we don't build too much in the foundation of verse 22. But I think it's appropriate that we do draw attention to the manner of Christ's preaching as well as to the content of his preaching. There's a criticism that we have in Ireland about some of those who are younger in the ministry from members of our congregations. They tell us, you know, there's nothing wrong with their exegesis or their application. It's all totally orthodox and soundly biblical. But it's the way he says it. And they complain that their pastor is harsh and he's uncompromising and he is hurtfully direct in his preaching. 
As one man said to me about his minister, I'm just waiting for him to reach beneath the reading desk and to pull out his automatic weapon and to spray us all there and then. <laughs> and week after week, the congregation is exposed to a hail of theological automatic fire, which destroys them and leaves them spiritually wounded. Now, don't get me wrong. There was no one more skilled in fixing an audience in his sight and scoring a direct hit than our Savior. He knew, as no one else, as no one else knew, that the impervious armor plating of sin needs to be pierced with the law of God. But he also knew that wounded souls needed the balm of divine grace and love. And sometimes our congregations need to feel the grace and the love of Christ radiating from the pulpit. Congregations need to know that their preacher cares for them and that he loves them. They need to experience the grace and the mercy of God in their lives. And often it is as the word is preached graciously that the renewing and transforming grace of God is known. Christ, Christ preached the gospel of grace with words of grace. Don't let your frustration with the imperfections of the church or the church's members obscure the gospel of grace. The pulpit's not the place for us to vent our spleen on all that's wrong in the congregation. The way you speak your message must be commensurate with the content of that message. Jesus spoke a message of grace graciously. Finally, the response. How did the congregation receive his message? Seems to be a range of responses to Jesus' preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth. There were those, as we have noted, who were impressed by his gracious words. They heard his reading of the text. They liked what they heard. And at a superficial level, they were pleased. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And one way of understanding that statement is to put it in the local boy makes good category. We're so proud of you. You're one of us. We know your family. We know your background. We're so pleased that you've been able to take part in the synagogue service so acceptably today. Thank you so much. And there will always be those who will listen to our preaching, whose response will never get beyond that superficial level. They are concerned with what we might call the conduct of the service, the identity, the manner, even the dress and the appearance of the preacher. And their stock comment as they leave the building after the service is, that was a lovely service today. And they fail to understand that the point and the purpose of Christian worship and of preaching is not always for us just to say it was a lovely service, but to disturb and to awaken our consciences to the claims of Christ. But they never get beyond the visible circumstances. They never get beyond the outward forms of worship and preaching. But that comment, isn't this Joseph's son, may have a more negative connotation uh, as Mark's parallel account reveals. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Jude and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. That negative reaction becomes more apparent when Jesus concludes his exposition of the text. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Having heard Jesus' message, they were incensed. They were filled with hatred. 
The thought that they were worse than Phoenician widows, the thought that they were worse than Syrian lepers was too much for them. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. I have a friend in the ministry whose elders complained to him that they were unhappy with his preaching. So what's new, you say? He asked them what was wrong, and they made a number of vague comments about the length of the sermons as well as the content. And one man eventually suggested to my friend that he should cut out probably the last 10 minutes of his sermon. So my friend sought to take that uh, criticism to heart, and he began to think about it. And he realized in his style of preaching that he normally made his major application in the last 10 minutes. And suddenly the penny dropped. What was annoying his elders wasn't his explanation, wasn't his exegesis. It was his application. They were happy enough that his sermons were based on the Bible. They just didn't want to be told what it meant for them. And the people in Nazareth were happy that Jesus read and expounded the scriptures. What filled them with anger was his application to them. Could it be, folks, that when we challenge people's categories in a radical way, when we refuse to reinforce their convictions and their prejudices, that we too will face a negative, even hostile reaction? Could it be that the gospel of God's grace is still too hot for many religious, church-going people to handle? Could it be that a direct application of God's word to the lives of one's hearers is not always met with a thank you for your message, Pastor? At times it may elicit the most vehement anger and rejection. The evil one sees to it that the progress of the kingdom is constantly challenged and constantly opposed. And sometimes that opposition doesn't come from some distant, unknown person or group. It can arise from among those who know you the best. Don't be surprised when an initial enthusiasm quickly changes into more sinister opposition. Because that was Christ's experience. And it will be the experience of many who follow in his steps. But take comfort from Jesus' response. He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. His calm, majestic bearing was in sharp contrast to their boisterous display of bitterness and of anger. Faced with his composure, the crowd seemed to freeze on the spot. Well, it's lovely to be congratulated on your preaching. It's lovely to be told how wonderful a sermon was. That praise and that adulation is so heady and so stimulating, it's totally addictive. And as preachers, we'll sometimes say things so that others will congratulate us and praise us. It's a different story when one faces criticism and censure. And it's then that we need to remain resolute and calm.
as those who preach the gospel of grace, as those who preach the demands and the standards of Christ's kingdom, we need to be clear about our goals. We need to be committed to our task. And we need to remember that positive popular responses are not always indications that we're on the right track. And having faced the hostility of his hometown where he might have expected a more positive reaction, Jesus is not diverted. The next Sabbath finds him in Capernaum teaching the people. And in Capernaum, they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. Early on in our ministries, folks, we have to learn how to handle criticism, how to handle negative responses. Learn from the example of Christ. Don't be sidetracked. Don't be excessively depressed when you meet opposition. Remember, it was the experience of our Savior himself. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his life, his death, and his rising again has brought to us the wonderful truth of your grace and of the gospel. Thank you, Father, that by your Spirit you have reached to us we have come to know that grace in our lives, to be received and accepted and loved by you. Help us, Lord, as we seek to discharge our ministries, to ever follow the steps of our Savior. And even as we go about the task of preaching your word, help us to remember his example. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.